If I could spend one Sunday, which is today, one Sunday, to give you an overview of the Westminster Confession of Faith, what can I talk about? What is the unique feature that I could talk about in one Sunday? I thought about this because I did not want to drag this on for a long time because not everybody is able or willing to listen to this kind of, not really today is a sermon, but a lecture. And my conclusion was this, that I will talk about chapter 7 where it talks about the covenant. Westminster Confession of Faith gives us many things. But if you could ask me, what is the greatest feature? I would say that out of many, it gives us, the confession gives us a way to look at God, ourselves, the history, the world, and salvation history through a single lens called covenant So today's title is the thesis or theme for my sermon slash lecture for today. So give me one Sunday today uh, for me to talk about the confession that we subscribe to as a church and a unique feature in that confession that the Westminster theology, that is Westminster Confessions theology is covenant theology. If Westminster Confession is Grand Canyon, there runs a river right through it all that is called covenant theology. And I will try to explain that today in about 30 to 40 minutes that I have today. Lest you think that I am superimposing something that is foreign to the scriptures, Let me begin, and you can follow along in your bulletins. Let me give you some Bible passages. Some of you wonder, when you go off to a college, there are so many different churches. There are Methodist churches, and Baptist churches, and Presbyterian churches, and there are whatever names, and whatever denomination, there are so many churches. And you are, by the grace of God, by the providence of God, you are in a Presbyterian church. When I was in college, when I went to college in Austin, I didn't know which church that I should go to. Uh, And in the South, there are so many Baptist churches. I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and I didn't know what the difference was. Presbyterian church, and now there are Baptist churches, so I asked... My mom, what should I do about the church? Should I go to Presbyterian church or Baptist church? And my mom said, basically the same thing. And go to Baptist church because they had so many youth and college students there. Presbyterian church, they didn't have many of the college students. So I went to Baptist church. So think about it this way. I am not here to give you a theology lesson. The fact of the matter is, This great theme of the covenant is included in the confession. All I am asking you to do today is to be a person or Christian who understands which church I am in, 
what kind of tradition that church is in. And if they say there is a confession, take a look at it. What makes me a Christian in a Presbyterian church in 21st century? You cannot talk about that unless you go back and think about the theology and tradition that we are part of. So, okay, that's my introduction. So first section, what I want to do in the first section is to give you a few passages. Look with me in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, as God says, there is going to be a new time. God uses the language of the new covenant. He could have used many different words or concepts. But listen to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Why? Because old covenants failed. People didn't listen. Israelites didn't obey. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, in Jeremiah's time, as God is explaining to them, there will come a new day. When I will write my law unto their hearts, and I'm going to do this on my own initiative, and I am going to call that day New Covenant Day. I am making New Covenant. So think about it as an anticipation of Messiah that is coming. The language of the Bible is the covenant, a new covenant. Let's go to Luke 22. Luke 22 verse 20, look with me. This is the night that he was betrayed. You know, this is the Last Supper. And as he was about to die following day, he explains the meaning of his death. Who does? Jesus himself. As he eats with his disciples. And how does he describe his work? And in, this, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is what? Is the new covenant in my blood. He teaches his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, what I'm about to do, my death, the blood that I am going to shed, is the new covenant in my blood. So he's thinking about his death in terms of the new covenant. I am going to shed my blood, but it is the new covenant in my blood. So you and I, we need to know something about the covenant. Unless you understand the concept of the covenant, none of these things will make sense. Only superficially, Jesus died for my sins. But there is much more to it than that if you follow what Christ is saying, what what the Bible is saying. Look with me now to the statement that Paul makes. 2 Corinthians 3.6 He describes himself and his ministry as servants of a new covenant. So Jeremiah 31, 
Luke 22, Paul himself sees himself as a servant of a new covenant. And Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 says this, But now he, that is Christ, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews 8 talks about Christ's ministry, especially his high priestly ministry. And the language that Hebrews uses is the language of the new covenant. So, first section is done. First section, my point is simple. That is, in order for us to understand and fully appreciate the meaning of Christ, what he has done for the church, we need to understand the concept of the covenant. This is not a Presbyterian idea or Calvinistic idea. The language is there. The concept is there. And what our tradition has done is to simply connecting the dots. Made it into a coherent system to read and understand the message of the Bible. Covenant theology. The big name, covenant theology. So first section is done. Second section is this. I want you to look at the first few chapters, the order of the chapters in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this is probably the most important section. Westminster Confession has 33 chapters, starting from the scriptures to the end of the things. Um, But there is logic to it. That's very important. It is not people gathering and saying, what should we talk about next? And whatever comes to their mind, they will say, well, let's talk about the law. Let's talk about the grace. No, there's a logic. They want to present the gospel in certain order. So first two chapters are the foundations. Scripture and the Trinity. God and the Trinity. Chapter 3 through 5 are the decrees of God. God had a plan, eternal plan, eternal decree. And it comes out in two ways, creation and providence. And now chapter 6 is the fall of man. In chapter 4, it talks about creation of man. But chapter 6, following the biblical history, there's fall of man, sin and punishment thereof, and Fifth chapter, fifth paragraph we looked at today. But look at chapter 7 and 8. This is very important. As the Westminster Assembly gathered in what year? Last Sunday. 16, 43, July 1st. They gather and they are writing this actually from 45. They had to do a lot of other things. So they spent about a couple of years on other documents. But about 45, they begin, they begin writing. And after the fall in chapter 6, chapter 7 is very significant. They don't simply say Jesus. But they introduce the concept of the covenant. Unless somebody will point this out to you, you will not notice this because covenant is a chapter. So if you're reading this, you say chapter 7 is about covenant. 
Chapter 8 is about Jesus. But chapter 7 is the great gateway. What follows is the salvation of man. After chapter 8, chapter 9 is free will, not predestination. There's a reason behind that. But as they are thinking about how should we present the gospel story to the church of Christ, they're thinking, let us begin with the covenant. In chapter 8, what's the title? Christ is presented as Christ the mediator. Not simply Jesus the Son of God or Jesus the Savior. He is that. But they are presenting Jesus as Christ, the mediator of what? The language is 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. But if you read chapter 8, first paragraph, the language that it uses is the covenantal language. For example, in chapter, we're not there in chapter 7. Chapter 8, Christ the mediator that is not printed for you. In the first paragraph, one of the sentence, paragraph, uh, the, the, this word, uh, paragraph is this. Unto, him, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people. That language is a representative language. That Christ is the head of the new humanity. That kind of language. So it is clear to me. In chapter 8, though the title is Christ the Mediator, what is omitted is he is the Christ the Mediator of the Covenant. The Covenant concept is there. And I actually went back and compared that section, that section with Irish article. Remember last Sunday, we talked about Westminster Confession had two predecessors, Harmony and the Irish article. And they are adopting much of it from the Irish article. And when you compare the order, Irish article and the Westminster Confession of Faith, at least first few chapters up to chapter 8, they are basically the same. Westminster Assembly is basically copying it from the Irish article. And Irish article's title is this. Same thing as, Of the fall of men, original sin, and the state of men before justification, and the following one is of Christ, the mediator of the second covenant. Westminster's title is what? Of Christ, the mediator. The covenant concept in chapter 7 is not a chapter. It looks that way. That's why people miss it. But when you actually read that chapter and study it, the idea or the concept of God's covenant with man is an overarching theme through which the Westminster Confession presents the rest of the Gospel story. Now, if you will look at chapter 7 that is printed out for you, I'm not going to spend too much time, but I want you to get just a few concepts. In chapter 7, very first paragraph says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, 
yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. That is, the distance is so great, man cannot come to God. That's what it is saying. But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. What that means is, Westminster theology presents the relationship between God and man through the covenant. When God condescends to human level and makes that contact, God creates man in his image. In Genesis 1 through 3, you will see God will give commands to our first parents. But the whole thing is described as by way of covenant. So God, as taught in this uh, Westminster Confession, is God is a covenant-making God from the beginning. So there are two concepts here. Second paragraph. He makes the first covenant was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So, covenant theology is that in that covenant theology, God is covenant-making God from the beginning. And there are two covenants. The first one is named as what? A covenant of works. Whose works are we talking about? Adam's works. Once again, I am not here to teach you some kind of fringe theology to you or, or, or quotations from some theologians, but simply this is actually the confession, Westminster Confession. So when you actually read the confession, you will have to familiarize yourself with the covenant concept. The first one is that, first covenant is what? Covenant of works. I want you to remember that. What's the first covenant made with Adam? Covenant of works. What happened to that covenant? He failed. So, paragraph 3 is this. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that's the first covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. So, how many covenants are there? Covenant of works and covenant of grace. I want you to go to the next, next page and find at the bottom little picture that I have gotten it from that source. That's what the covenant theology is really all about. Look at that picture, how it describes two covenants. First one is covenant of works with Adam. And the rest is described as covenant of grace. And if you follow what is at the bottom of it, covenant of grace will include covenant that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and Israelites at Sinai, and with David. You see that? If you understand this picture, you understand the very basic concept of the covenant Theology. Covenant of works made with whom? Adam. Adam is not simply our father, but he is a representative. He represents humanity. 
And he fell by disobedience, and in him, all of us, we fell. That's Romans 5 language. But there's another head of the humanity, new humanity, called Jesus Christ. So rest of the Old Testament history up to New Testament, the umbrella term that you see is the covenant of grace. That is very important that you understand that Mosaic Covenant is included under the covenant of grace. Okay, so that basically is it. That basically is the concept of the covenant. At this point, most of you will think, what is the point of all that? I will give you a few bullet points, but before we do that, I want to read the section that I've given you as covenant theology. I went to a seminary, and covenant theology is taught either in your third year or fourth year, toward the end. I remember sitting in a class, and the professor was basically teaching all of that, but I didn't understand a thing. But what really taught me this great concept of covenant theology was actually by reading an article which I printed out for you in a study Bible. Title of that study Bible is the Spirit of Reformation Study Bible. It is now out of print. It was in the 90s and early 2000s, but it is out of print. But that was an update to R.C. Sproul's New Geneva Study Bible. And, um, you know, like many study Bibles, if you have, if you own study Bibles, there are articles in it. And there was this article, The Covenants of Works and Grace. What is covenant theology? It is basically this section and the following section, just a couple of pages. And this is the greatest article on the covenant theology. And once I read this couple of pages, I understood. I understood what that professor was trying to teach me, teach us. What's the significance of that covenant thing? Covenant works? That's easy to understand, but covenant of grace? So I only made 10 copies thinking not many people will read this. So after the service, I'll put it outside if you want to pick it up. And if you are a high school and above, I encourage you to read it. And it is also uh, uploaded in a OneDrive, Twitter, there's a link, and there's a PDF file that I made because this is really out of print. But let's spend about five minutes reading this basically in the summary form. And I will probably conclude right after that, giving you the benefit of the covenant theology. So read with me, covenant theology section from the Spirit of Reformation Study Bible. In traditional covenant theology, where do we get that? From the Westminster Confession. In traditional covenant theology, 
The whole history of the Bible was divided into two major covenant relationships. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. This dual covenant approach to scripture finds a clear expression in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Those things, you go home and look it up. At this time, in the 1600s, there are a couple of confessions that were widely used. First one is Heidelberg Catechism. And the second most widely used confession in the continental Europe at the time was what is called Second Helvetic Confession, written by Henry Bullinger. If you look those two most widely used confessions, and I, last Sunday I tried to explain, every church and pastors, a pastor, they produce some kind of confession. They all wanted to teach their people by writing those things, but in those two most widely used confessions at the time, if you will look it up, the concept of this covenant of works and covenant of grace it, they are not there. There are a few covenant words in it in explaining the baptism. But Westminster Confession of Faith, 1643, 1645, they start writing, 47 ratified. It was the first time that it was actually put into this creedal, confessional form. Why is this important? Because if you are an, an or some kind of Presbyterian church that is conservative one, chances are your pastors and elders and like a denomination like ARP, they require from the membership to subscribe to the confession. We do not do that. We have that five basic questions. But the officers of the church are to study these things and to subscribe them, subscribe to them, to it, as the officers. So this is important. This is important to safeguard a church from going liberal or teaching some kind of heretical doctrines as you study this. In Reformed theology, the term covenant of works refers to the arrangement God made between himself and Adam before humanity's fall into sin. It does not refer to the covenant made with Moses at Sinai. In the covenant of works with Adam, God promised blessings to Adam if he obeyed, judgment if he disobeyed. The determining factor, determining meaning factor was Adam's works. Thus the term covenant of works in all events, the scriptures indicate that Adam failed to keep God's command. So God made a second covenant arrangement, the covenant of grace in Christ. Second one, covenant of grace. The terminology covenant of grace is used to describe God's relationship with his people throughout the rest of scripture. Since when? Since Genesis 3.15. All the covenant makings of God will be subsumed under the rubric term of covenant of grace. Properly speaking, this covenant was ultimately made with Christ as the last Adam, the representative of redeemed humanity. It is designed, designated, a covenant of grace because it operates 
on the basis of divine grace offered through Christ's death and resurrection to all who believe in Him. The covenant of grace began with a promise made after the fall that the seed of the woman would one day crush the seed of the serpent. After this, the covenant of grace unfolded in five major stages of biblical history. None of these covenant stages opposes any other. On the contrary, each subsequent stage builds upon the previous ones. And the rest, if you want to, you could pick this up and read it. If you could understand, this really a couple of paragraphs, worth spending your time. right? I think this is worth your time because this will give you the framework. So you could read about it. The rest, I am not going to think about it. But if you are interested in it, Read those sections that I've given you. What, what are we talking about? Covenant of works? We understand. Adam failed with that covenant. Why do we call that covenant? Because there were terms. If you disobey me, you will die. If you eat this, you will die. There, there are terms. But he failed. So the rest of, as we have said a few times when we talk about infant baptism, if you read the Old Testament, God makes many covenants. And uh, as we have said today in Jeremiah 31, those temporal covenants were not good enough. And they were looking forward to that new covenant in Christ. But in our tradition, think about it. If you were a pastor in 1700s, and you subscribe as a Presbyterian church or pastor, you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, whether you are in the Americas or in the Europe or in Asia, in Africa, burdens are really upon the pastors. If you were serious about teaching God's people about the confession as the great summary of biblical teaching, in chapter 7, you have to teach the people the covenant of works and covenant of grace. And everyone, I am sure everyone was confused. But if you could get over that, whole new horizon opens up for you. And today I simply want you to know that the Westminster Confession teaches the, the entire redemptive history through the lens of the covenant. Covenant of works with Adam, covenant of grace with Christ, manifested in different stages of covenant making. And we as a Presbyterian church that subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith, we see the continuity between the old and new. And I will end today by simply noting few benefits. This may not make sense today. Let me, let me, from my standpoint, let me give you some of the benefits of covenant theology. What if you don't like this? What if you say, you know, I simply want to come to a church and listen to a sermon and go home. That could be your option. But you notice how you come to the Church of Christ after 2,000 years of history. So basically, all other options out there, they are all taken. You could choose to look at this covenant theology and think about it, whether this is good or bad for your reading of the Bible and appreciating 
the tradition, or you could just go out there. Let's say you are going to a church, and like so many of us, we have people that we listen to. We listen to many different people. Who do you listen to? I sometimes I listen to John MacArthur. Ligonier app and MacArthur, those are the two things that I listen to. When I used to drive to a church every day about three times, I would listen to all kinds of stuff, but now I don't have that time. And I can't just sit there and listen. So I listen primarily when I do the dishes. And let's say I listen to John MacArthur. I love him. Let's say I love him. Let's say I'm a fan of him. You notice how John MacArthur has his position on these things. Your option, let's say, I love John MacArthur, so if I move to California, I'm going to go to his church, Grace Community Church. I went, I've been there a couple of times. Let's say I love him, I love his preaching, and, 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 and I just love listening to him. What you have done is, basically you went to someone who, re- who has rejected the entire concept of covenant theology. And though you may not listen to it in the podcast, whatever, but his theology is basically a dispensational. He says he's not, but he is. Mild dispensational theology. You say, I don't care about that. Well, it will bear out in his preaching of the Old Testament. It is widely different from what you are used to. So it is easy to listen to someone who's famous, but what you are doing is, you are buying into his theology. So, John MacArthur recently said in his interview, he made his entire seminary professors and college professors, he's the president of both of them, master's university and master's seminary, a powerful seminary. So many people who, who listen to John MacArthur, they go to his seminary to be like him. And he recently said he made, that's the word, he made everyone, each professor at his seminary and college to subscribe to his biblical doctrine book that he, came, he put forward a few years ago. So the options are, you come to a church like our church, who talks about Westminster Confession of Faith, and you are sitting there thinking, that's not interesting. Let's say you go to that church, what happens is that pastors, more more than likely, they have already taken a position on certain things. So my question is that, to those people, is it better for you to Go to a church or seminary where everybody has to subscribe to John MacArthur's systematic theology. One man's. One man's idea and teaching. And risk everything. What if he's wrong? What if he's wrong? I do not like idea of submitting myself to a single individual. That's a dangerous thing. No matter who you listen to, whoever you're favorite radio podcast person is. It will be a very risky risky thing for you to subscribe, basically submitting yourself to a single person. 
A person cannot know everything. What's the benefit on our side? I would say Westminster Confession is produced by many people. Many people, not a single individual. Like Heidelberg Catechism was written by Arsinus, Second Helvetica Confession, Bullinger, primary authors. But Westminster Confession really is the confession that is written by so many people. Debating every day. We talked about it last Sunday. And after that ratification, 1647, when it was adopted by the Scottish Church and Irish Church, English Church, they have never adopted it. That's the irony of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written in the Westminster Abbey by the order of the Parliament, English Parliament. But English Church rejected it. Never adopted I grew up in a Presbyterian church in Korea and here, but my spiritual heritage would be the Westminster Confession. So I am posing it to you. You could reject this, and you are free to do so. There are so many people in denominations that reject that, reject this. But I want you to read this and think about it, whether to, to see for yourself whether this makes sense or not. And every person has to synthesize, synthesize everything that you see from the Bible. You have to make it into a system. Otherwise, you, you, you don't understand what's the point of David. David killing Goliath. What is that about? Unless you have a coherent system of seeing the whole thing together. And let me give you a few um, bullet points. The, Benefits of Covenant Theology, which I came to appreciate. Now, it's been about 20 years that I've been reading and studying. This week, I've spent much time restudying Calvin. Because all roads lead back to John Calvin. I'm sure you have heard about Calvin so many times. I'm not a fan. He is difficult to understand and he is very boring. Very. Uh, but as I went back a few months ago to reread his institutes, after studying the confession this spring, what I am seeing is I am seeing in Calvin all that you see here. That's why people say Calvin is the, the greatest. But let me skip that today. few things. First of all, first benefit is this. Unity. When you emphasize unity of Old and New Testament, you will find in our scheme, in covenant theology, that there is one plan of salvation by the grace of God through faith. Simple question is, it's Mosaic covenant. People, most of the people out there, Christians, think mosaic thing was basically obey the Ten Commandments. If you don't obey, then you are doomed. Right? That's most people, that's what most churches, they believe. How were the Old Testament saints saved? If you ask that question, people will say they had to obey the law. But were they able to obey the law? No. So what they have to say is the entire Old Testament people, 
since Mosaic time, they went to hell. Because when you look at Romans and things like that, Paul, nobody could keep the law of God, correct? So people say, entire Old Testament people, except let's say probably David, he was a good guy. But the rest of them, they went to hell because they couldn't obey. That's the point of the gospel. That's how the most of churches, they, that's what they say. They never think about this. But in our scheme, in that, in that picture, Mosaic covenant is covenant of grace. That's the primary thing. There's one plan of salvation. How? Because Genesis 3.15, there was a promise of the seed of woman. That's the gospel. It was good enough. That's the point of chapter 7. The Old Testament people were saved through the basically the same way as we are saved. Only difference is that they had to look forward to that coming Messiah. They didn't have the full picture. We look back. That's the only difference. But it is by grace through faith. That's our scheme. Let other people tell you their scheme. Flowing out of that, advantage of our scheme of the covenant theology is that there is one people of God. If you listen to John MacArthur, if you look at the study Bible, his study Bible and the Old Testament, like so many dispensational theology, he has two-track salvation in his mind. When you listen to his New Testament teaching, it is not clear. It's just another Bible exposition. But when you listen to the Old Testament preaching from, let's say, John MacArthur, he will say, he will tell you, God's plan of salvation is one for Israelites and one for New Testament church. How, did the, how does the Old Testament Israelites will be saved? They have to now come to the New Testament and make that thousand-year kingdom, premillennial kingdom, to have them saved. So it is very different. I don't know if you know David Jeremiah. I used to listen to David Jeremiah. He's a great preacher. David Jeremiah is also DTS grad. So when you look it up, if you just type David Jeremiah, what did he write recently? I looked it up. If you are in that dispensational category that you probably think, what's the point of it? They produce in the Old Testament things like prophecies and the future of Israel. That's their primary concern. So you will see him producing always the things about Israel, the nation of Israel. What happens with Ukraine? Immediately, dispensational thinkers will think about the prophecies. This is referring to the, the aggression from Russia. And now this is the end of the world. This is the end times. All of that intricate details of the prophecies being fulfilled, that you will see a lot from dispensational preachers. For us, there's one plan of salvation and one people of God. Old Testament is Old Testament people of God, the church. New Testament is New Testament church of God. It's basically one continuing people of God from the old to the new. That's the first one. Second one is this. It gives us a better appreciation of the Old Testament. Old Testament is not a repository of insights that you go and try to apply the insights. It's not. It's basically God working out His salvation story in one unified theme from the Old to the New. 
In our scheme, the third benefit is this. In this covenant scheme, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, both God's sovereignty and human responsibility can be emphasized without sacrificing the other. First paragraph, chapter 7, talked about God, the distance, and God is covenant-making God. So God initiates the whole thing. God creates. God didn't have to. He falls. Adam falls. God did not have to go back and give him the promise, uh, promise of Genesis 3. God didn't have to, but God does by His grace. So we could talk about God's sovereign grace. But at the same time, the definition of the covenant is that there are terms involved in it. And because of that scheme, we could talk about God's sovereign grace. That does not cancel out man's responsibility. Today we read from chapter 6, 5th paragraph, how our sins, though forgiven, they are sins. See, it is talking about that. Basically, we do not cancel each other out. We find my sins are forgiven. Then I could live in whatever way I can. No. Another one is full appreciation of covenant signs. We talked about this in infant baptism, so we'll skip that. Explains, this scheme explains imputation of Adam's sin and imputation of Christ's righteousness. So it safeguards the doctrine of justification. I'll skip to the final one. In covenant theology... Trinitarian theology is emphasized and highlighted. Because covenant theology is about, first and foremost, about the covenant between God the Father and God the Son. And basically, basically it is flowing out of that eternal covenant that God had made. Let me end with this final uh, quotation. And guess who is saying this? The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and of grace. May God grant us now the power to instruct and you the grace to receive instruction on this vital subject. Can you guess who said this wonderful praise about the covenant theology? C.H. Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher, said that. If you could distinguish the covenant of works and covenant of grace... You are a master of divinity. If you could pick this up and read this, this will take about 20 minutes or so, and actually think about it, so much will make sense in your Christian life. And God has given us this great heritage. Let us make use out of it. Let's pray.